Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning. Uh, we're going to open up into Matthew chapter 23. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 23. Uh, we're actually going to read the whole passage this morning, so that's going to be fun. Uh, if you're familiar with Matthew 23, you will understand why I say I am both excited and a bit nervous about this morning, because it's, it's, a, it's a text that's just plain in your face. I mean, Jesus is just very direct in this passage, and if you remember back to last week, Matt Deason really laid out um, what happened in Matthew 22, and he's in Jerusalem, and the, these different religious leaders, they come to him, and they want to catch him, they want to trap him, and Jesus responds with this incredible genius, and then he launches into this critique of the Pharisees, and what I want us to consider this morning is what it might be like to put ourselves in the seat of the Pharisees. When he critiques the Pharisees, those are the, the religious leaders. They're the, they're the social conservatives of the day. They're the, the Bible-reading folks. And when he critiques them, um, I want us to read today's text thinking about what it might have been like to be there and to put ourselves in their seat. So let's open up with verse 1. It says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. He's in Jerusalem after he's got done responding to their questions. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. I do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, we'll keep reading in a moment, uh, but I want to pause here first just to kind of frame this whole thing. Jesus says, You should be careful to listen to what the Pharisees tell you to do, but don't do what they do. Don't do what they do. They don't practice what they preach. And I imagine in this gigantic crowd, imagine opening up a discourse that way. I mean, it's like the first century version of a rap battle starting. And Jesus just throws it down. And I, and I picture in my head, like Peter and James behind Jesus, like, oh, dang, in your face, Pharisees. Because these people have been in power and they're teaching and leading and there's something expected out of them. And Jesus just comes out on fire. Don't do what they do. Maybe listen to what they say, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. Listen to Jesus' words about those leaders. He says they tie up heavy loads on people. 
And that's not literally, but that's through their teaching. They, they burden people with their teaching, but they're not willing to help lift a finger to move that burden. He says they love to be seen as righteous. You know, they make their phylacteries big. And for those of you who don't know what phylacteries are, I don't expect many people to, um, phylacteries are these little boxes that you wear during your prayers. And so there's little boxes that have a rolled up scroll of the Torah in them, and you wear them on your head and on your arms. It comes from Deuteronomy 6. And so you would wear these in your morning prayers. To this day, Orthodox Jews wear this when they pray. And he says they love to make them big because it projects this sort of righteousness. Hey, I've got really big phylacteries. I've got a really like, thick ESV study Bible, essentially. And I walk around with it. And I've got a prayer shawl that has extra long tassels just so you can see the righteousness dripping off of me. He says they love to be called teacher or rabbi. They love the places and the titles of honor. They love to be exalted. Essentially, they love to have a lot of influence and followers on Twitter. And he says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So I imagine as they're saying this, Pete and James are just behind you. It's like, oh, that's double in your face. Not only does Jesus tell the people not do what they do, but then he just goes into it. And Jesus then launches into an even more specific critique of the Pharisees. And he uses this, this word hypocrites. Now, hypocrites is a word that is familiar to many of us. We use it often to talk about someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. Or a religious person who doesn't act the way that lines up with what they say they believe. But that usage, the usage of that word hypocrites, it actually changed over time because of the way that Jesus used it and because of his followers. Originally, it's a, it's a word for an actor who would put on a mask and they would say the right things at the right time. But there was a huge disconnect before the pers- between the person that they were on stage and who they were in reality. And what we'll see as we read is that is not a good spiritual condition to have, to be a hypocrite. So let's read on in verse 13. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and I'll start over. (laughs) Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. Now, time out real quick, because that's an odd one to us kind of hard for us to understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is critiquing a practice that the Pharisees had where they would parse the words of an oath. And if your oath was just on the temple, well, you didn't really need to follow through on it. But if you promised on the gold of the temple, well, then it was actually binding. And, and Jesus says that distinction, that parsing of words, it's not only blind, it's foolish. It's missing the point altogether. God has always wanted people to be truthful and to follow through on what they promised to do. So if you're going to parse things about how, well, if you didn't word the oath right, then it doesn't really matter. It misses the point. That's what Jesus critiques them on. Skip down to verse 23. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, 
But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just all pause and take a deep breath. Can you imagine standing there on that day and listening to Jesus who really just launches into this discourse that says, and another thing, and another thing. You blind, foolish, hypocritical, self-indulgent, greedy, child of hell, snakes, brood of vipers, and another thing. What in the world has Jesus so riled up? The answer to that question, I think, says a lot about Jesus. And how we answer that question helps us better understand him and, I hope, will help us better understand how to follow after him. Because if he's that direct and critical of their practices, well, then we should probably pay attention so that we don't repeat them. But the problem is, we often do. This is Jesus seated in the tradition of the prophets like Ezekiel or Elijah or Isaiah. And he even points out, Jesus points out that there's been prophets through the ages who've come to the leaders to, to critique them and to tell them what's going on and what happened. The leaders killed them. And this is precisely what's about to happen to Jesus. And so Jesus stands in this tradition of the prophets before him. And here he is, he's in Jerusalem, and he's speaking out against the abuses of the leaders. And he does not hold back. He's critical of how they exalt themselves, of how they ignore the people that they lay burdens on, how they practice some aspects of the law, but they neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness, how they clean up the outside, they put on the mask, 
but they're hypocrites. There's no integrity behind it. How they aren't responsive to God, even when he sends them prophets and warnings and messages and messengers. They, they ignore God who's actually standing right in front of them, pleading with them. And these people are supposed to be leaders. And yet they're mistreating and blindly, foolishly leading God's people in a way that's destructive. And, and this is why Jesus has such harsh, harsh words for them. His criticism, criticism, criticism of them and correction of them is for the sake of helping them. And, and this is critical because it's for the sake of helping them and those that they influence. Jesus isn't saying these things because he hates the Pharisees or because the Pharisees are his enemies. He's saying this. He's speaking the truth in love. He's correcting because in God's kindness, he corrects us. It actually would be terrible to allow the Pharisees to continue going in these destructive ways, to continue misusing and abusing and misleading people. It's out of Jesus' care and his kindness that he corrects them, and out of care and kindness for the people that they lead that he corrects them. So as we read this text, it's important to note that Jesus does this out of his love. It's out of a desire to save and rescue from the patterns of self-destruction that we all have. Because if left to our own devices, we, and we can see throughout history, have the tendency towards misusing and mistreating and abusing power and exalting ourselves over others, and particularly religious leaders, people like me. I mean, for, just think about the last week. Um, I don't know if you read the news very much, but there's stories in the last week of pastors and priests and relig religious leaders who uh, are in, involved in sexual harassment or sexual assault, uh, abusing their, their roles of leadership. Whether it's uh, a youth pastor who, who hooks up with a, a student in the youth group and then silences them for decades, or if it's someone who siphons money to the offshore bank account or to the private jet fund, or if it's a leader who convinces people to give money towards the $60 million mansion that God wants to bless him with, while those people can't put groceries on the table. This is exactly the type of thing that we see day in and day out. We have these patterns of self-destruction and misusing power. And it's out of Jesus' kindness that he wants to rescue us from those patterns. It's out of his love that he corrects us. He wants to rescue us from that path. And we need that correction. We need to be rescued or else we see and have seen throughout history just what happens. Like I said at the beginning, Sometimes I don't think we're that different than the Pharisees. If, if we were just to go back through the passage and to think about the things that Jesus critiques the Pharisees on and ask how, how would we stand before those same sorts of things, what would that be like? It's a difficult practice, but let's do it. They don't practice what they preach, do we? They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Do we? They love the places of honor, being recognized as the teacher. Do we? They shut the doors of the kingdom in people's faces. 
do we? They do all sorts of work to win over a single person, and then once they're on the train, they teach them to be self-righteous. Do we? They give their spices and tithe, but they neglect the more important things, Jesus says, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Do we? They clean the outside. They give this positive external appearance of themselves, and yet they do nothing with the internal bent away from God. Do we? They are full of greed and self-indulgence. Are we? Self-indulgence, actually, it seems like, is a virtue for us. Do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want it. Don't deny yourself any pleasure. Just do it. God is standing right in front of them. God sends messengers time after time and they ignore it every single time. Do we? As I said, I want us to think about putting in ourselves the place of the people receiving Jesus' critique. And it's so easy to think, man, Jesus was correcting those people 2,000 years ago. Thank God that we don't have those problems anymore. I know sometimes that I read the Gospels that way. But the reality is, as I read through this list, I am guilty of way more than two or three of those critiques. And if Jesus were standing here today, I, precisely as a religious leader, I'm precisely the type of person that Jesus would come to correct. Jesus always has his harshest words for religious leaders. The people who are supposed to be trustworthy and truthful and humbly serving, and who in one way or another have gotten off track. And it's in Jesus' love that he comes to correct. And because he loves us and loves the people that we speak to and interact with and care for, that he comes to critique us. Because if he let us continue in that way, the way of self-exalting, the way of greed, the way of self-indulgence, all those foolish ways, that would destroy ourselves. That would actually be the worst thing for us and the worst thing for the community. We need Jesus to give us the course correction. We absolutely want that. Not because we're somehow on the outs of God's loving kindness, but precisely because he loves us. So I say that as preference because I'm potentially about to offend some people. And I I want us to think not only how do we stand up against the critiques that Jesus said 2,000 years ago, but what if Jesus were to come to us today and give the woes to Christians in America? And it's not my intent to offend. It's my intent to ask that question. What if Jesus gave the woes to us? I I know I have things that I would say, But what I wanted to do was broaden my perspective because I have a very limited perspective. And so I asked people older than me, younger than me, male, female, to input their ideas into this. And so I just want to submit them to you. It's not gospel, but let's just ask, could this be something that Jesus is saying to us? Woe to you, Christians who follow the crucified Messiah but do not die to yourselves. Woe to you, Christians who defend the Bible in arguments, but you don't take time to read it. Woe to you, who follow a humble king, but you are full of pride. Woe to you, who care more about advancing the interests of this nation than you do about advancing the interests of the kingdom of God. Woe to you, Christians who worship the one crucified outside the camp, but do not consider the outsider. 
Woe to you who follow the God of love, but you who are known for what you hate. Woe to you who care more about church marketing and branding strategies than justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you who say your worth is in Christ, but in reality, it's in your job, your vibe, your style, your clothes, or your Instagram feed. Woe to you who lead worship and preach, yet you need rides home from the bar and you cover up your affairs. Woe to you who claim to love others, yet you leave no margin in your life to actually spend time with those around you. Woe to you who spend more time complaining about others than praying for and working for resolutions. Woe to you who plead the case of the poor abroad but are disgusted by the poor within your own city. Woe to you who say you love your neighbor as yourself yet you do nothing to affect the injustice and systematic oppression against that neighbor. These are hard words for us to hear. And in reality, they're really hard, hard words for me to say um, because I'm just as much a part of the problem as anyone else. It's not as if I stand up here because, hey, I have it figured out or there's a group of us who have it figured out and we're just trying to catch everyone else up, so please catch on. I, I say all those things because Jesus wants something more from his church. I, mean, I sincere, sincerely believe that. I mean, Jesus really wants us to practice what we preach. Uh, Jesus really wants us to help others with their burdens. He really wants us to take the paths of humility. He really wants us to be a people who throw open the doors of the kingdom. He really wants us to be people who not only do work to get someone to pray the prayer, to get in the door, but also people who are disciples, apprentices in the ways of Jesus. He, he wants us to be people who don't neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness, and also don't neglect the little things that God asks of us too. He really wants us to be a people who don't just clean up the outside, but who let ourselves be transformed from the inside out, to be generous and willing to place our own needs second. God wants us to respond to the messages and the messengers that he sends. As we approach today's text and these themes, and we think about the ways that we should respond, I think there's actually dozens of ways that could, we could potentially respond. But I want to just think about two. So for one... There might be something really simple that in the comments in reading through Matthew 23, there's just something that sticks out because God's been speaking to you about it for a while. And there's a really simple response, though it's not necessarily easy to do it. So if you're convicted about self-indulgence and greed, take steps towards generosity today. If you're convicted about this self-image that you're projecting that's tidy and clean and nothing is ever wrong and yet on the inside there's all this tumult, well, share that with someone. Talk to someone about it. Live in open honesty today. Thinking about how you really love to be exalted. You really love to be made much of. You really love it when the hundred likes come through on Instagram or Twitter. What I'd encourage you to do is practice the ancient Christian discipline of secrecy. It's really a spiritual discipline. So the next time that you do something that you normally like to get praised for, purposely hide it. Don't tell anyone about it. Another way that I'd like to suggest that we respond this morning is through just self-examination. To pray and ask ourselves and ask God, hey, 
Is there any way that you want to rescue me from patterns of self-destruction? In order to frame that, I have one resource that I think might be helpful. It's been helpful for me. So some of you might be familiar with a person named John Wesley. John Wesley was an Anglican priest from the 1700s who, along with his brother, did a lot of really amazing stuff. And one of the things that they did was at, the, at Oxford University, they had this small group called the Holy Club. Not really original, but it worked. And in the Holy Club, they followed a really strict method of how they were going to live out their discipleship to Jesus. And that method is where we get the term Methodist. It came out of that. But part of that method was they would ask themselves 22 questions every single day. 22 questions of self-examination. And you can go back and read and see what these people did, and they did some pretty amazing stuff. So just imagine for yourself, Decent, you could put up some of them. You could put up like the first 11. There's, so, there's 22, so it's hard to get all 22 on a page. But imagine doing this. Your morning devotion, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, and then you pause and you ask yourself question number one. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? It's not really a cheerful way to start off your morning devotion. But I think it's an essential, essential question to ask, especially in light of today's passage. Now you might say to yourself, Matt, that's really depressing and we shouldn't focus on all the, the ways that we come up short and we shouldn't focus on all the ways that, that maybe we are hypocrites. We shouldn't really focus on that. And, and in a sense, I agree. That, that shouldn't be a, a focus for our lives of how terrible we are or anything like that. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. But what I am communicating is that if we never ask ourselves that question, there's a problem. If we never pause and ask, it would be odd. Question number five. I'm sharing ones that are particularly convicting to me. I realize as I selected from the 22, I'm sharing ones that are hard for me. Number five, am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habits? Number six, am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Sometimes all three. Uh, let's go to the next page. Number 19, do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despised the publican? And that's the old English way of saying tax collector. Now, what Wesley is referencing here, some of you know this, there's a first century prayer that Jewish men would pray every weekday. And you would start off by saying, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, because you have not made me. And you would pray this three times. The first prayer was, Thank you that you have not made me a Gentile. The second time you would say, Thank you that you have not made me a slave. And the third time you would say, Thank you that you have not made me a woman. Now, many of us would never dare say those words out loud. But I wonder if we have ever operated out of the same mindset. Maybe we've prayed the same sorts of thing. Thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I'm not, and you fill in the blank. Number 20. This one gets me almost every time. 
Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Now, this gets me every time because the first part of the question, inevitably, the answer is yes. And inevitably, the answer to the second part is nothing. And then I realize, dang it, that's not what Jesus wants for me. That's not what he wants for us. So why do I bring all these questions up? What am I saying is a fitting response? Well, this morning, a fitting response is self-examination, prayer, self-reflection. God, what are the areas in my life that you're calling me to grow in? What are the patterns of self-destruction that I walk in, Jesus, that you want to rescue me from? God, am I someone that you want to correct? The alternative, if we never ask these questions, what that does is it creates fertile ground for two things, a self-righteous attitude and hypocrisy. May that never be true of us. Lord, save us from that self-destruction. Now we read that text and I say all of that as a preparation for us to move to what is the center point of our gathering, to come to the table of the Lord. And as I reflected on the table and the way in which Jesus gives himself to us, his body and his blood to us, what, what was really clear in my mind was the way in which this, Jesus' body and blood, shows us exactly the ways in which he is the exact opposite of the Pharisees. They are self-exalting. He is self-effacing. They are greedy and indulgent, and he's generous and humble. They are hypocritical, and he's a man of integrity. They tie up heavy loads on others without a willingness to help. He takes on our burdens. He picks up the cross for us. The Pharisees shut the doors of the kingdom and Jesus throws the doors of the kingdom wide open. And when we are called to follow after him, we are called to do the same sorts of things that Jesus does. He calls us to follow after him, to pick up our cross and follow after him and do the sorts of things that he does. So as we come to the table I just want to orient us towards that prayer of self-examination. As we come to a Jesus who forgives us and loves us, absolutely. And on Thursday, uh, we did this worship and prayer night, and it was really great, and, and I think God showed up in really distinct ways. And one of the things that came to mind as I was thinking about self-examination and, and all of that is towards the end, we were singing uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I had this brief moment where I had this realization that if we're to pray that prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come, it's got to start somewhere. There, there's got to be a place where that happens first. It has to come in our hearts. It has to start in our motivations and our desires. And so as we pray this morning, I just want to use that as the framework for our examination. God, what is the way that you want your will to be done in me? What is the way that you want your kingdom to come in me? So I'm going to pray, and uh, I'll invite Annie and Than just to come back up. And as I open the tables, I'll invite you to do some prayer as well, to ask that question. 
And before you come to the table, spend some time in prayer, asking God some of those questions. And if there's anything that that comes to mind, I would encourage you today to respond to it. So let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. I come before you this morning humbled by the realities of, of what you said to the Pharisees and the realities in which you could be speaking to me. I want to be cognizant of the ways in which you want to correct us. You want to rescue us because it's out of your love and your kindness that you do it. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would correct us, rescue us, teach us for each and every heart this morning that we come to you because of the unique ways that we're bent and molded. There's unique things going on in each of our lives and I can't know every single one of them. No single one of us can know everyone else in the room, but you know us. You know us better than anyone knows us. You you know not only what we do externally or say externally, but you know what's on the inside of the cup. And so God, come and speak. Come.